Welcome to Inflection Points, where in each episode we talk about the pivotal moments in the careers of tech leaders that help them navigate a new path to growth. My name is Joe Hine, and in this episode we speak with Dimi Albers, the CEO of Dept, one of the fastest growth technology service businesses in the world. You'll love this one because we discuss telling private equity about Plan B, how to maintain a culture through fast growth and M&A, the point that Dept could really compete, and what he brings to the role as CEO. From SI Partners, this is Inflection Point. Dimi Albers is global CEO of Dept, a pioneering technology and marketing services company that creates end-to-end digital experiences for brands such as Google, KFC, Philips, Audi, Patagonia, and eBay. He's overseen the company's rapid expansion to a truly global organization through both M&A and phenomenal organic growth. Dimi was part of TamTam, the agency that became Dept, holding many roles in that agency, including opening their Amsterdam office in 2011, where he joins us from today. Dimi, welcome to Inflection Points. Thanks, Joe. Great that you're having me today. Hopefully we'll have a cool conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for coming. So dive straight in. Before we talk about your business journey, let's talk about your background. How did you get into the agency space? Uh, the simple version is went to university to do political sciences, dropped out, started working at a tech startup. In that tech startup, once delivered a solution to TomTom, the old agency that we built Adaptapon. In that, got to know our founder quite well. Then we sold that startup business. I went traveling for like six months, came back, and then uh, Bart had always said, if you need a job, give me a call. So then I gave Bart a call, and then I started at uh, TomTom, which is now Adapt. So that's the very short version of it. <laughs> and what, what was it that you liked about um, TomTom that made you join? I think that the simple version is, so when I was working at the, the startup, I focused both on, on tech and marketing, and but then more from a product, let's say, perspective. Mm. And what I liked uh, about TomTom is that sort of it had that same focus of doing both. Um, and culturally, there was just a great uh, alignment. And what I had kind of learned in my previous job is at the startup, we built this great culture, um, which mm. totally got sort of lost in the sauce or the meat grinder of a bigger organization. Um, mm. uh, so I knew how important it was to be at a place where actually the culture is good because I actually left the, the after the acquisition because the culture was so bad. Mm. So um, And that was the part that I liked most about TomTom and probably still like the most about Dept, right? I love what we do, uh, but I probably love a bit more sort of how we do it and the people that we do it with. Great. Luca, we can absolutely come on to that um, a bit later. Um, and what was the strength of TomTom? What, how, how were you, because you were growing very quickly, what was driving that growth? What was resonating with your proposition, your proposition in the marketplace? Yeah, so um, I think it's good to know that um, originally TomTom focused on platform work. So basically design and development of first websites, then e-commerce, and then mobile apps. Mm. And um, what we saw sort of in the in, in the lead up to 2015 when we truly started Depth was that we continued to kind of build out that value proposition across the digital customer journey. And what we saw was, hey, um, uh, we weren't able to do it all, but in the specific parts around um, uh, the platforms, we were able to to bring in a few really great specialists uh, within TomTom. And we saw, hey, if you're able across multiple parts of the uh, digital customer journey to deliver at the highest specialist uh, level, but you can't bring it together, that's when it gets interesting. And I think that's sort of what we 
sort of saw working and what we um, uh, ultimately also capitalized on by, by building out the model as we, uh, as we have it now. Mm, fantastic. And that takes us to our, so the first inflection point I want to talk about. So the agency was growing very quickly and you were approached by the private equity firm Waterland. Where was TomTom at this time? Uh, so this is uh, beginning of 2015. Okay. We had 120 people. We were purely based out of the Netherlands. We had offices in two or three cities here. Um, uh, as said, we focused mainly on platform with a few things around it already. Um, and we had some nice both uh, Dutch but also international clients. Mm. Um, and that was mainly the point that we were at. Um, we were discussing amongst, uh, let's say, the group of partners. So we had the two founders, uh, Bart and Paul, um, and then a few other uh, partners like myself. And we were discussing, you know, what do we want to do? And while we were doing that, um, uh, Waterland knocked on our door. Uh, they were doing a scan of the, the Benelux, um, let's, say, let's say, field of digital agencies. Um, they had a premise. Their idea was take uh, not just TomTom, but um, basically competitors who do exactly the same thing and bring those together. Um, and we had a good conversation. We really liked the Waterland guys, but we didn't like the idea of merging with like our biggest competitor and, and just doing the same thing. Uh, so we came up with what we literally called Plan B, which is our own strategy, which was, hey, not that idea of bringing the same thing together, but working across the full customer journey, not just doing it in the Netherlands or the Benelux, but doing it internationally and ultimately globally. So we literally made a presentation, which was called Plan B, um, uh, showed it to Waterland, and um, uh, they were like, this is not a bad plan at all. And uh, we like you guys. So ultimately they said, okay, <laughs> let's, let's invest in TomTom um, and not on the premise that they thought of before, but on the premise of what we had called uh, Plan B and is our current model. So that's so interesting. So you were... You, uh sat down with the partners, you, you know, as every business does, you're going through your various sort of rounds of strategic decision-making, but had not set on a strategy, any strategy in particular at that point in time, perhaps exploring lots of, or thinking about lots of things. Yeah, that was, the, the main thing was, um, because the business um, was founded by Barton Paul in 96, um, mm. I joined in 2006, so we got, there was already quite a development, of course, much more locally and at a smaller scale. Mm. But it was a very logical moment for us to talk with ourselves, amongst ourselves with uh, about it with our clients. And we kind of just got lucky that while we were doing that, the PE, uh, Waterland in this case, knocked on the door and, and the two things kind of came together serendipi uh, serendipitously. Um, because the alternative for us is when we came up with the strategy, the idea was we're going to do this organically because we didn't know about inorganic growth and buy and build and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so we kind of had the idea. We wanted to do it um, organically, but we also knew, you know, that's going to take probably another 40 years to then get there. And the market doesn't have that time, yeah. um, which meant that, you know, the idea of teaming up with the PE and, and really being able to also add inorganic growth to the mix um, for us seemed like a really good idea. And can you remember in the plan B what the, uh, what the end game was, how, how big you were going to get? Yeah, we had a, yeah, we, so first off, we focused more on, let's say, Europe slash Northwestern Europe. So we thought that that's going to be the, the one place. And then we said, in the coming five years, this was actually a slide, including an animation, we would go from, so the, the motto was 10, 100, 1000. Right. So we go from one country to 10 countries. Yeah. We go from 10 million of revenue to 100 million of revenue and from 100 people to 1,000 people. Yeah. So we made that idea. So that was the concept. We had like an animation where it dropped 
from the sky and people were saying, <laughs> you guys are batshit crazy, you're never going to get there. But we were like, no, no, we will. And then, um, uh, and then ultimately we started, so in the beginning it was a lot about sort of speed and, and skill, right? Mm. So getting into other markets, bringing the model together, but everything was about uh, a pure, sort of a pure speed and skill within uh, Western Europe. Um, and then we hit the, the 10, 100,000 mark sort of, uh, I think after two years and 10 months or 11 months or something. Wow. And that's when we said, okay, hey, wait a second. We've built the model first in the Netherlands in the first year, then second sort of, or um, the one and a half year after it went into uh, more parts of Europe. We saw it working and that's when we said, hey, we want to take the model and, and grow it um, uh, outside of Europe and ultimately global, mm. which is what we're still uh, doing. Brilliant. And um, you, you said that kind of when you, the, the, the chemistry with the private guys with Waterloo was, was good. Like what, what did that feel like? What, what, what made you realize that these are people that you wanted to, to go into business with? Yeah, this, the simple version is that um, when, and, and I wasn't at the first conversation, that was uh, Bart and Paul. Actually, I remember because Bart and I were working on a pitch and he literally said, guys, I'm going to walk out. I'll be back in an hour. I have to talk to some suits. It's going to be horrible. But no worries. And then <laughs> this is literally what happened. And then he came back and he said, well, that was actually a fun conversation. It was like talking amongst ourselves. And uh, we laughed very loudly and we didn't take uh, ourselves seriously and neither did they. So maybe this could work. Mm. Um, and I think that in the end for us was super important that you know, they believed in us as a business and in our strategy. Mm. They believe in not sort of meddling in the day-to-day -day business, but really empowering uh, the leadership team. Um, and just culturally, it was it was a lot of fun. They're just good guys, super informal, mm. um, really focused on growth. And and yeah, we could um, uh, we could uh, have great conversations and laugh very loudly, which often helps. Yeah, well, I, th I think it's it's everything, right? You know, the business is serious, but you you got to have fun as well. Um, there's lots of parallels in what we do um, when we bring businesses together and you see in that first meeting, you can see when chemistry works, when when people just are on the same wavelength, they're talking the same kind of language and, and you know, not quite finishing each other's sentences, but certainly enjoying each other's company. So yeah, I can, I've, I can definitely have parallels. 100%. And so that brings us on to our, our next inflection point. So the debt journey began. You've made 33 acquisitions, each one an inflection point in its own right bringing together thousands of people under one umbrella. First, can you describe what the debt culture is and, and how you've managed to maintain this as you grow? Yeah, so I think, um, uh, so we describe the debt culture as big enough to cope, small enough to care, mm. which, by the way, is a, a phrase that one of our founders in the UK came up with. Mm. And the idea is fairly simple. Uh, big enough to cope means we have the skill to work for any brand or company or organization in the world. And small enough to care means that both for our people as well as our clients, um, the day-to-day -day work needs to feel like it is a boutique uh, agency or a boutique company. Interesting. Because we feel that, let's say, those personal relationships, the relatively flat hierarchy, as flat as possible, um, uh, uh, and that, yeah, that really sort of entrepreneurial ownership on a local level is what makes our business different and is frankly what makes our difference a place where we want to be instead of have to be. Um, so that's since the beginning. It was when I joined TomTom, uh, Tom, that was basically the core of it. Um, and I think that has remained. And when it comes to retaining the culture, um, I think it all starts with sort of who do you let in? It's a bit like a good party. Um, uh, it it depends, sort of the party depends on which people you let in at the door. Um, so I think 
we spend an enormous time when it comes to teams that possibly will join depth in vetting the cultural piece of it. And we have walked away from many deals that were financially great or strategically great, but didn't work from a cultural perspective. Um, uh, because we know that if you do that right, and if in essence the cultural values of a team align with big enough to cope, small enough to care, that's when we know that when they come in, we're not asking them to change their culture. We're actually saying your culture matches ours. So that's that's why we work together. And step by step, we will sort of assimilate into each other from both ways. Uh, but the core of it is the same. And I think if you do that, then you have a really strong basis. And then, of course, there are, you can call it processes or specific things we have in place which work. So when a team joins, we, um, mm. uh, we have some really good sessions. We call it induction or depthifying uh, sessions where we really sort of immerse them into the work that we do and the, co- the, the culture that we have, a lot of interactions with myself and other key people. Um, we do that same thing, by the way, every two months for everybody that joins the company. Um, so internationally, people come together. Of course, it's virtually um, uh, since COVID, um, uh, come together to do different workshops and interactions so that they really connect with the whole culture. And then company-wide, we have a monthly session where everyone joins, where I give a bit of an update. They can ask me anything. It's called also the Ask Me Anything. And then we have inspirational speakers from across the company that show work and other, other cool stuff. Um, and then we do sort of an enlarged version of that once a year where we bring all adapters um, uh, to the Netherlands and spend a weekend together. And I think those are sort of the process points that we have in place to retain culture. And then lastly, sorry if I'm being a bit long about it, but it's for us it's a quite important topic. And then Slack plays a huge part in our culture. Okay. Because that's the way where daily people will be able to not just interact with the people close to them, but also with the people who have the same craft or passion on the other side of the world, um, where leadership can come together, where employee resource groups can come together, whatever it is. um, uh, It's a a plethora of all kinds of connections between people where they can uh, feel at home without necessarily being in one office with, uh, with the people that they interact with. You've got these sort of systems and processes, right, in place to, to help maintain the culture and, and encourage the culture, but so much culture is driven by people. Do you have cultural guardians and, and people that are sort of identified that will, will help this process work? Well, so um, I think there's two sides to it. So one very important part of our culture is when we uh, started the debt business, we said we want to embed that big enough to cope, small enough to care in the ownership um, uh, of the business. So we had, I think, seven partners on 120 people when we started, and it's now 250 partners on 4,000 people. Wow. And in principle, the guardians of our culture are the partners. They are the, the people that have either founded the business or grew up in the business, put their own money in, mm. um, uh, so literally are invested personally in, in the future of, of, of debt and, and, and their entrepreneurial journey. And yep. they are 100% the guardians uh, of our culture. Mm. And then, of course, around that, we have a team of people who facilitate a lot of the stuff that I just mentioned, right? So that makes sure that when we do come together for a weekend, that it's the most epic weekend of the year for anybody that's there. Yeah. When we do the sessions, you know, how do we ensure that we show the, the the coolest work to people, that they know what we're doing in Australia as well as in the US or Argentina or whatever it is. Um, so there's definitely a team that facilitates it. But I think the culture of a business is always decided by its 
current and future leaders. And for us, the current and future leaders are in that 250, uh, 250 folks. The partners. Yeah. You, you touched on um, entrepreneurialism and maintaining that. And as any business is growing, you know, retaining that spirit is, is incredibly important. How do you guys go about doing that? What, what is it that you, allows you to capture it? Yeah, I think the fact that we have an ownership model like this, where you have 250 people mm. who are all invested themselves into the business because they all literally put their own money in, and that's how our model works. Mm. I think by association, if you have that, you will be connected differently to a, a company than when it's just your job. Um, mm. uh, so I think that helps us enormously to ensure that you know, our clients are working with true entrepreneurs, right? And any of our clients has a personal relationship with one or more of those partners. Um, so I think that's where everything starts. I think that it is important that all those shareholders own shares in the global company. Yeah. Um, 80% of our incentives are also global and not locally. So people are not just kind of defending their own kingdom, but it's all about how can we um, go on this journey together to do the best thing for our clients and our people. Um, and I think that is the core. Interesting. And then maybe lastly, entrepreneurship generally works a bit better in, um, let's say, a looser structure, which sometimes hasn't defined everything. Right. Um, and in, in all fairness, I think our the way we are organized is very far from ideal because we want people to have room to do things, yeah. right? So it's not the idea of you're in this box and you're perfection in the box. It's much more, there's a bunch of circles who hit each other everywhere and give people the room to uh, to go on to their entrepreneurial journey. And of course, there are moments for people where they don't feel that because they're, you know, they're hitting a wall or whatever it is. But I think in general, the fact that our organization has quite a bit of a breathing room within um, uh, everyone's position um, I think that uh, that creates a lot of uh, uh, entrepreneurship. Brilliant. That's interesting. And, and you touched on a few things here that, that I'd like to move on to in our, in our next inflection point. So there's a critical juncture in your business. You've, through acquisition, you'd created 18 different brands, all sitting within the debt umbrella. And you had to decide whether to structure yourself as a holding company with many sub-brands or to rebrand as a single company? I mean, you've clearly chosen the latter, but how did you go about making that decision? Yeah, so the decision was actually made uh, when we started. So we said, you know, the uh, because we were, of course, like I think everyone in our industry, we worked for clients where we partnered up with holding companies, consultants, independents, whatever it was. And the one thing that struck us, because we, especially when we were smaller, we had quite some, you could lightly call them strategic partnerships, but we worked together quite a lot at clients with other partners and, and we just figured out that, you know, the only way for that to truly work is if all the interests are fully aligned. Right. And we feel that, you know, to get full alignment of interests, you need to have that ownership model that we have um, uh, and you ultimately need to be one company. So we also, so one is we don't talk about acquisitions. We talk about teams that join debt because that's the spirit of how we work. Interesting. Technically, of course, we are buying 100% of the shares, but for us, it's very important that we uh, speak about it in terms of coming together, joining. Um, uh, and if you take that as a, as a start, then um, ultimately it needs to be one business, which ultimately should have one brand. So we always talk about we are one company with multiple teams who come together. Right. Some of those teams have joined a long time ago and thus 
don't have their own brand anymore. Yeah. Other teams have joined more recently and their brand might still be in a, what we call co-branding situation. So Two Bulls, uh, agency from Australia that joined. So they're called Two Bulls Depth since they joined. And um, uh, they still have it because that name has value both from a business and a cultural perspective. Mm -hmm. We know that sort of probably within 12 to 18 months after they join, that name will flip fully towards debt, but we always do it in the right um, schedule. And for instance, I know that this year, especially over the coming uh, three months, we'll have another, I want to say nine or 10 teams who will fully rebrand towards debt. So it's a continuous process and it's all about business and cultural value, which then um, brings in, let's say, the exception to the rule, right? Because every rule needs an exception, otherwise life is horrible. Um, And for us, that uh, exception is there are certain teams who might have been here longer, but their brand or co-brand has a very strong cultural relevance. So for instance, you have Basic um, uh, in the US, you have Studio Dunbar here in the Netherlands as examples. Those brands have been around for a long time. Mm. Clients literally go into their Instagram DMs to startup collaborations and... That's a moment where we think, okay, you keep that co-brand because you're batshit crazy if you don't. Um, uh, uh, So there's definitely a few of them which might forever um, uh, have a co-brand. And we're good with that as long as we all align that we're one company, we work together as one team. And then if there is a brand that has cultural value, it's totally cool. Yeah. You touched on, or you talked about bringing in businesses and then a lot of them 12 to 18 months down the line will rebrand. I mean founders can be very precious about their brands and um, for a lot of them it's quite hard to see them go how do you take them on that journey to help them understand why it needs to happen and and why it's a good thing for them yeah it's um i think one is to be clear since the start so probably the first conversation we have because we're introing ourselves is we say hey the idea is that we're one company that we're ultimately one brand so if you decide to join there, there will be a moment where you probably have to say goodbye to it. Um, so that's one, which I think gives a lot of comfort for them to either know if they want that or not, which then informs the rest of the sort of process. Um, and then the second one is the simple idea that we don't decide when it happens, but that um, it's a joint decision with the entrepreneurs. So we haven't had one team up until now where... I had to go, you are rebranding now. It just doesn't work that way. The way it generally works is the team joins. um, They are starting to work together and go to market together with Debt. And they just figure out that it's very complex because with multiple brands, it's tougher to tell the story. So they go like, can we please make the planning for the rebranding? We have to do it right. And there's like a whole process around it. And after the the full rebranding, the old brand still stays active for a certain time. We call it the Twilight Zone only reactive, but it's there so that you don't miss any business. Yeah. The, the idea is have it be a joint decision and have the initiative come from the team that runs uh, or the management team that runs it. And then you're generally in a good uh, good position. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. So the concept of creating one brand is a lot about having a shared vision and, and bringing everyone together under one culture. Um, but you know, what has been the impact on your ability to work for clients and compete for clients? Yeah, I think this is exactly the reason why we chose this model, right? Because we are a services business, which means we work for clients. And the philosophy is a client should be able to work with the best people that we have within depth, regardless of location, capability, whatever it is. 
that's why we made the model. And because we've had the model since the start, I think we often, when competing for work, for instance, at clients, we have a, a slight advantage uh, versus a lot of our competitors because generally they all come from a separate model or sorry, a different model with a different structure and have tried to simplify that more complex structure over the past years. We've had the, and it's also a bit of luck, uh, that in 2015 we immediately said, this is how it's going to work. Um, which means that sort of from a feedback perspective, you know, not only the fact that we have a broader set of capabilities than most competitors, but the fact that we can actually get those people in a room to work together is usually from a, a let's say, a client feedback perspective, both in competitive pitch situations as well as sort of our collaboration uh, feedback uh, on long-term clients is generally one of the important points that we that we get back. And it's not perfect, right? I mean, we the, if a team from Australia joins, you don't have it done in a week to make everything work seamless. Um, but the structure and, and, and the way we do it and the culture we have does enable it to to do that uh, integration from a, from a client work perspective way faster um, than in some other places, I think. And I've often read about depth in the press and you're described as as one of the challenges to the industry. Do you, do you still feel like a, a challenger now that you are a global business? Uh, this is a good question. So I hope that um, we'll feel a bit like a challenger forever. Um, let's say from a cultural perspective, because I think if you consider yourself a challenger or an underdog, however you want to call it, I think it's sort of a fire that pushes you to be sort of ahead of the game, to be faster, to be more innovative and all that kind of good stuff. So from that perspective, in spirit, I think we still are and I hope we will be that way for as long as we do this. Um, I think that from a, a client perspective, it is a bit different, right? Because we might not be at the size of an Accenture or a Dentsu or whatever it is. Mm. But if a client is asking us a specific question and we show them how we've been doing that for the past five years for brands at a global level, etc., that's not a challenger narrative at all because the work that we've displayed for our clients is at the level and I hope in, in a lot of cases even better than what is happening in the industry. Yeah. So I think spirit, challenger, yes, uh, in terms of where we are as a business. No, I, I, yeah, I think we're getting closer to being an established one. Yeah. Um, at least from a what we've done from a work perspective, from a brand perspective, definitely still. I mean, we don't work that hard um, uh, on, on putting the brand out there. Um, so it'll take us a few years to get to the same brand recognition as some of our competitors, but we'll get there. I mean, we're still relatively young, right? That's what is it? Seven years, uh, seven and a half years. Mm, yeah. And, and a very impressive journey. Long may that, that challenger status today. Dimi, I'd, I'd like to take you back to 2018. There was an inflection point for you personally when you became CEO of Debt. However, this was a new position. Debt previously hadn't had a CEO. Why did you feel the need to create the role? Yeah, so we indeed, we never had a CEO. I think um, by all means, uh, one of our founders, Paul, was the informal uh, CEO of the business because he was the founder, he was the oldest of the two brothers. He still is the oldest of the two brothers, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so I think that he was, um, uh, he was definitely our natural uh, leader. And what I think sort of was the trajectory, 
let's say between 2015 and 2018 is that in 2015 when I took over the let's say daily running of the of the business um, it kind of um, started a, a let's say a transition um, between myself and Paul one which uh, we even spoke about before so it was I think quite quite thought out and quite deliberate um, and I think that the main thing in articulating the CEO role was that you know our business um, went from you know, small in the Netherlands to then internationally in Europe to then sort of starting to look at the US. And in, I think January of 2019, we did our first, we had our first team join in, in the US. So we, we kind of knew that as things got a bit bigger and as also cultures joined, um, or let's say countries joined that um, like a bit more clarity in terms of hierarchy, um, because I think in the Netherlands, sometimes it's, it, it, we're slightly informal from that perspective. But we knew, hey, it's important to um, to have clear who is sort of who is in that uh, in that role as a leader, and that's why we said, hey, this is a good moment, and also because I grew into it, right? I think, and I think that's the right way. If you hire somebody externally, it's very logical that it's a hard cut moment. Um, but I think I much more grew into it first running the business in 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 the Netherlands, then uh, so in Europe together with Paul, and then kind of transitioning into the CEO role and. Paul uh, and Bart are still here. They're on our supervisory board. So whenever I need advice or they think I'm doing something stupid, we, <laughs> we might text each other and, <laughs> and chat about it. We agree mostly, but not always, which I think is a very healthy, uh, very healthy position, actually. <laughs> uh, what was the uh, what were the biggest personal challenges for you from for taking over from the two founders? I don't know. I think it hasn't changed a lot about how I do things because sort of my philosophy, and I, I probably learned that. I don't know if they said it explicitly, but I think what I learned from Paul and Bart is is leading a business is about doing a lot of small things right and not doing mm. really big things wrong. Um, <laughs> okay, interesting. I think I did that 10 years ago, seven years ago, five years, etc. Um, I think the main challenges uh, are twofold. So one is, uh, it definitely impacts, it can impact your personal life, right? Because, mm. I mean, the business grows, there's a lot to do. Yeah. Um, uh, so it, it it asks quite a bit from my family, in this case, my wife Nina and my mm. two kids, Fedor and Lev. Um, so I think, you know, being even more strict in in, in scheduling and, and making mm. sure that I um, uh, am not away the whole time, uh, but I, that I'm actually here in the morning, bring the kids to school, you know, yeah. Yeah, dinner, bring them to bed, that kind of stuff. I think that's been um, uh, the, a challenge, which I hope, you never know if you're doing it right, but I hope and think that I'm doing a decent job of it. Mm. Um, and I think secondly, um, uh, coping with uh, the fact that if you are CEO or global CEO, that people do think of you differently and they react yeah. to you differently. So Interesting. Th- there's moments where I, I tend to, try to be the same person in any room. So regardless of mm. it being in the house or in, 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 in at work or with clients, whatever it is, it usually works. But um, there are moments where if I say something, the impact of it, I cannot fathom because mm. I don't know how people react to it. And yeah, for some people, if, if you know, if I go to uh, India to our team there, mm. um, they look at me differently than someone in Amsterdam who's been here for 10 years, who's also an engineer, and they're literally working on the same project together. They they look at me different, and I think getting that right and understanding what that means in terms of what um, when do I lean in and when not, 
Um, mm. What do I, you know, do I uh, meddle in stuff or not? I think that's that's the most challenging, and it's a constant uh, uh, challenge. I think. Have you had to change or adapt your style to account for that? Yeah, I think that the main thing is um, I I have a, a pretty strong drive uh, uh, about things, mm. which means that I kind of like to jump in. I go super deep on details and and push and whatever. I think um, I have learned much more to kind of understand when to lean back and to when when to lean forward, um, because I was a lean forward the whole time, one hundred percent in the highest gear type of guy for the, well at least the sort of the first ten years that I worked here, mm. and I think specifically also leading up to twenty eighteen and then after twenty eighteen understanding that lean forward and lean back um, thing has been the thing that I, that, that's helped me change and made me probably also a better person because it, yeah, it mm. just, it, it's also a bit more, the moment you, and I, I definitely do it wrong, but the moment you get better pattern recognition for those kind of things, mm. I think it also enables people around me to do more and it enables me to uh, not push my agenda too much and that kind of stuff. Mm. It allows them to understand the parameters that they can work in, right, as well. Because as you said, as you're establishing the pattern of your behavior, yeah. they understand when they can, what license do they have and what control do they have versus when they need to kind of bring you along or, or be, you know, kind of allow you to have more of involvement in the journey. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think maybe the, the, to, to build on that, I think it also brings uh, to it the, the one challenge which, um, I think sort of street cred is fairly important in our business, mm. which means, you know, nobody's just managing, everybody's also doing the work. Mm. Um, so there are moments where I really want to lean in. For instance, I meet one client per day, at least, to stay connected to our teams, to what we're doing with clients, our partners, etc. Um, it's sort of the anchor of how I try to lead the business. And um, I think people appreciate it that I go deep mm. in the details, that I help out, etc. Um, but I still need to be doing that, right? Otherwise, I'm just one of those CEOs who just tells people what to do and doesn't <laughs> do it their, themselves, which just sucks. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it, it, it's kind of figuring uh, that out is, is probably the, the biggest challenge. Getting the balance right. If you're an investor, um, what question would you be asking the CEO of Depp today? <laughs> well, <laughs> I know that most investors uh, think in uh, at least greatly or for a great part in spreadsheets. So they yeah. would probably ask me about some numbers, which I will then give them um, uh, because fortunately I know them. Um, I think the, the main question I get is, I think investors in principle understand what are competitive uh, advantages. So full uh, capabilities across both tech and marketing, which is unique super um, uh, pioneering innovative work, and then the culture we have, I think the question that always pops up is, if that is competitive now, and I see that because your numbers are great, client feedback's good, but how do you retain that? So how do you retain the culture? How do you stay on top of the, the being sort of the, 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 the sharpest when it comes to the capabilities? And how do you continue to do the most innovative work out there? I think that's the general question that, um, that usually sort of comes through both from sort of externals as well as in our own board, as well as anyone that I talk to. And therein lies the magic. Therein lies the magic, which <laughs> is probably just continue to do what we do. Don't stray too far <laughs> from what we originally thought we were doing and the culture we have, and then we'll, we'll, we'll probably be good, is my, is my guess. Thank you, Dimi. It's so great to hear your story. One final question before you go. 
Um, after looking back, I always like to look forward and ask my guests what's exciting them about the next 12 months. And I know um, you've got quite an interest in uh, the emerging technology. I'd love to hear your thoughts around that. Yeah, I think definitely um, there's a bunch of stuff that um, uh, that excites me um, uh, from from a business and personal perspective. But I think definitely what you pointed out, right? Um, the emerging technologies, which will, which are, I think the the big two ones are, of course, AI, which is the hit now, and Web three, which was the hit last year. I think the thing which makes both different and why this moment in ten years' time will be an important moment is both are not just transformative from how we interact, how we build, how we connect, etc., but they also they also accelerate what we do in a great way. Um, and I think that, um, that is stuff that excites me, right? How can we help our clients accelerate in that, in that space? And if you look at AI, you know, last year in 22, 30% of our revenue, so 3.0, um, were enabled by AI. So whatever people were doing, either designing stuff, building it, um, managing media, doing data, at some point they had AI help them out to do it either better or faster or more, more efficient. Um, uh, and 1% of our revenues is, is, is doing what we call turnkey AI solutions, which is building AI uh, for our clients for them to, to implement within their business or their marketing. And I think that is a space which, which will accelerate. Um, I think it'll make a lot of the work that we do in our industry a lot more interesting I think a lot of people um, uh, that are now doing more production f- sort of focused work will be able to, um, with the help of AI, make their own work much more interesting uh, and do it at a far higher level. I don't worry too much about jobs being lost. I think as long as we all um, incorporate the use of AI in what we do on every level, it'll just create more opportunities. Um, but I think that's super exciting, right? How can we really and truly accelerate business for our clients um, and, and, and make the work that we do better and smarter? I think, um, I think that's hugely uh, exciting. And um, fortunately, we have a lot of smart people who, uh, who actually know how this works um, uh, and who get me excited so that we can then push to, um, uh, to have a big impact. Fantastic. I, th- I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this, uh, how this sort of turns out, the AI journey. So um, brilliant. Thank you. Dimi, thanks for being with us today. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, um, well, I hope, uh, I hope the next one is, uh, is good as well. <laughs> thanks, Dimi. Inflection Points is a production of SI Partners. SI Partners is a leading corporate finance boutique for agencies, consultancies, and technology providers at the forefront of the digital economy. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Joe Hine, and you've been listening to Inflection Points.